Well, good morning. It's good to see you. And uh, I so love the words, or some of the words of that song about Jesus being our cornerstone, that he is the cornerstone of our lives. And um, for many of us, like myself, I've been a Christian now nearly 38 years, and uh, my life has totally and utterly been changed around because of Jesus. And uh, maybe that you're visiting this morning and you're wondering, what on earth is this all about? Um, maybe that you are thinking, well, is there any more parts or elements to this service this morning? Well, what we tend to do when we come to uh, church on a Sunday, firstly, um, we take time just to sing our praises to God, the God who has meant so much to us, the one who is center in our lives. And um, we are instructed to, to worship him. And we do that through songs, other people's words, and those words can become our words. Because I don't know about you, I sometimes run out of words that I want to say to God, and it's very useful having some of the words that we've been singing this morning. And, uh, and secondly, um, we nearly always on a Sunday morning have community. So we've had the children out this morning, we've been hearing about Tina's book, which is uh, absolutely great and so forth. And it's always good because we, as a church, we're family together. That's one of the greatest and best metaphors of the church, that we are a family. And it's, it's, it's quite wonderful, isn't it, you know, just to have this extended family. Someone said to me this week that the thing that they see most about uh, in our church is, is family. And the third aspect, um, and each Sunday morning we will also take time to understand the scriptures uh, better t uh, together. And that's what we're going to do now, that we're going to turn to the Bible and uh, try to understand what it says, not just in its own context, but also for our lives today. There are many situations in our lives that will test our patience. Traffic jams, supermarket checkouts, doctor's surgeries, irritating people, <laughs> and even waiting for your meal at a restaurant. I've noticed that there are five different waits when you go to a restaurant. You wait for a seat. You wait for a menu. You wait for someone to come so that you may give your order for a meal. You wait for the meal to come. You wait for your bill. And they have the audacity to call the guy who served you a waiter. <laughs> A young guy went up to an older Christian and uh, asked for prayer and the young fellow said, please will you pray for me that I might become more patient? And the older Christian said, yes, of course. Let's pray together. And the older man prayed, dear Lord, give this young man tribulation in the morning. Give him tribulation in the afternoon. Give him tribulation. Whoa, said the guy, I didn't ask for tribulation. I asked for patience. And the old wiser Christian said, well, how else will you learn patience? <laughs> and our subject this morning, sorry, I forgot to bring this out. Our subject this morning is how to develop patience. And we are now in our penultimate um, and 14th uh, study in the series of going through James's uh, uh, letter in the New Testament. 
And uh, so that means next week we are finishing James. And I'm sure that some of you would be rather sad about that, like uh, saying farewell to an old friend. And others of you may be saying, oh, that's nice, let's get on to something else now. Um, Something a little bit more mellow and less challenging. Because if anything, our studies over the last 13 or 14 weeks have been incredibly challenging, haven't they? They have challenged us how we lead our Christian lives. They have challenged us um, um, to reassess the Christian faith, our Christian faith, and motivated us to walk our talk and to work out our faith in practical ways uh, each and every day. Last week, I know that um, not many were around again last week because of holidays, but we moved into chapter 5, and that was incredibly challenging to those of us who were here. And um, I said last week that the words in the beginning of chapter 5 of James's letter were probably the most challenging and the harshest that James has used in his entire letter. And we all had to sort of uh, brace ourselves a little bit and we came away bruised last week uh, with his words to us because they were quite uncompromising. And uh, James speaks about the wealthy, not just wealthy people in general, but wealthy people who in their day were oppressing and defrauding the poor and who were acting unjustly to the poor and they just lived lives which seemed to be oblivious to the needs around them and that's always a challenge isn't it you know that we have people around us and we can't live oblivious to the needs that we see around us in Tamworth and in the world at large well today's passage you'll be glad to know is not like last week's passage and we are focusing today Uh, not on the oppressors as we did last week, but we're coming to the oppressed. And James encourages his readers to be patient in suffering. The first six verses that we looked at James chapter 5 last week, um, which were quite severe, but in verses 7 to 12, which we will read together in a moment, and we'll put those scriptures on screen, they are altogether different. For on four occasions, if you read the New International Version of the Bible, he uses the word brother, or New Living Translation, it would be brothers and sisters. And there's there's a far greater tenderness and affection in his words. Thank goodness. And he encourages them to be patient in their suffering. So, we're going to turn to uh, James chapter 5. If you have your Bibles there, uh, James 5 verse 7. If you haven't, don't worry, we're going to put all the verses this morning that I'm quoting up on screen. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in fall and in spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For example... For examples of patience in suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They give great honour to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, Never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. 
Firstly, I think that it's always a good question to ask ourselves, who is it that James is writing to? As we said last week, you know, that the scripture wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And James was writing specifically in the first century to certain people. Who were these people? Well, these people were Christian Jews. They weren't living in their homeland of Palestine, but they had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And for these Jews, um, these Jewish Christians rather, they were experiencing great trials. They were living amongst non-Jews, and that was very, very difficult for them to do that because they were seen as the odd men out. And also, their own countrymen also despised them because the vast majorities of Jews, both then, 2,000 years ago and today, don't accept that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. So life wasn't easy. And James encourages them to learn patience in their testing. You know, those of you with children will know that kids can sometimes be impatient, yeah? <clears throat> you know, they want something, they want it now. You know, I remember when our kids were little and we had to do lots of long distant journeys and, um, you know, you get from the back of the car. How long? Are we nearly there yet? Yes? And uh, I'd say, well, another 250 miles yet. <laughs> a quarter of an hour later. Are we nearly there yet, Dad? And he has a long way to go yet. And then uh, after a little while, are we nearly there yet? I think that uh, the cheekiest comment was, um, will I still be six when we arrive? <laughs> I think that was our David that said that. <laughs> but you see, for Julie and me, just to say to the kids in the back of the car, be patient. It really wouldn't have made much difference at all, would it? And even as adults, sometimes, you know, to say, you know, if someone were to say to us, be patient at what you're going through, doesn't make that much of a, di of, of a difference to us. And James here doesn't just say, be patient to these Jewish Christians who were suffering in his day. He doesn't just say that, but he tells them why they should be patient. And he tells them how to be patient. And he gives them some really good, inspiring examples of people who have triumphed in their circumstances and have conquered and have persevered under great suffering and trials. You see, if you met a friend who was going through some kind of suffering... It may be health, or family, or finance, or work issues. And you just came up to that person and said, you need to be more patient. I don't think you'd have a friend for very long, do you? If you just said that, you know, they were going through some stuff in their lives, and you came to them and said, just be patient. But if you encourage that friend to think differently about their trial, and you help them to see that even in their hurt, that God was still in control. And that somehow, that your words brought them hope and courage to fight another day. I think you would have served them well. Yes? You would have served them well. You would have been a good friend. 
And James here, in our reading this morning, attempts uh, to get them to think the right way. Because he knows that when they are thinking in the right way, that it will affect their actions and reactions and the way that they live their lives. Paul says something quite interesting in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, let God transform you into a new person. How does God do that? Renewing of your mind by the way, by changing the way that you think. And that's what, or why rather, Paul encourages the Christians in Philippi, Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, to fix your thoughts on what is true and honourable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. And he says to them, think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And you see, I look at my life and I thank God that he has changed and is changing me. I'm changing my thinking over many, many years of following him. Um, Changing my thinking about God himself. About the world that I live in. About what is really important in life. And how to live a purposeful life. And he is changing my thinking about eternity itself. And that transformation is still taking place. And it starts in God changing the way that I think and changing the way that we think. And you see, James here is, in, is encouraging his readers to change the way that they were thinking, to think differently. And in essence, he tells them two things. He tells them to look up and look around. So what does he say, first of all? He says, in look up, in, he says, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Actually, he mentions the second coming of Jesus on three occasions in these verses. In verse 7 he says, be patient as you, will wait, uh, as you wait for the Lord's return. Verse 8, take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. And verse 9, don't grumble about each other brothers and sisters or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. And the subject of the second coming of Jesus, I know that many people caricature some, some kind of fire and brimstone preacher, you know, preaching at the front, you know, sort of dangling people over the flames kind of thing, whenever the second coming of Jesus is mentioned. Well, I'm not going to do that this morning. You know what I'm like. But I would say that this is a major theology, it's a major doctrine of Scripture. But someone has said that there are 300 Bible verses in the New Testament alone which speak of Jesus coming back again. That means one in every 13 verses in the New Testament is on that subject. And here we have three quotes on three consecutive verses. And as Christians, we need to take seriously this uh, teaching that Jesus is coming back. In verse 8, which is on your screen, James says, Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. James wrote that 2,000 years ago. So I guess that it's nearer today by logic than it was in then. Might be this afternoon. I hope it's not before Swansea play Man United on the... Because <laughs> I really do want to see that game. <laughs> but it might not be in our lifetimes as well. You see, the second coming of Jesus is an important doctrine, but it's also an abused one. And I've known Christians in the past, sometimes who are of a more of a fundamentalist kind of persuasion, 
you know, that they will um, just read books and pamphlets and listen to talks by some so distinguished expert that, uh, that will tell of how Bible prophecies are being fulfilled in our day and so forth. And you see, throughout church history, these teachers have come and they've gone and they've come and they've gone. And they will continue to do so. And I just want to mention something which I've become aware of. Actually, there's um, um, a new book out, a Christian bestseller. It was actually more than a Christian bestseller. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. It was a book of great influence. And I want to tell you about this book. It's entitled Four Blood Moons by a, an American megachurch pastor, John Hagee. And he speaks of the significance of, believe it or not, lunar eclipses, or blood moons as they're called, in 2014 and 2015. There were four of them, and the last is supposedly to take place on the 28th of uh, September 2015. And he writes, and he's got a great uh, number of followers, that this somehow is significant to world history, and it might even be the sign of the end of the world. All I would say is, if you have a copy of that book, please don't take it too seriously. It's part fantasy, past, part astrology, and the best I can say about this kind of material is that it is fanciful at best and rather bizarre. And probably the best thing to do with it is to put it in your blue bin this week for recycling <laughs> because it's blue bin week this week, not grey bin week, along with the Left Behind series of uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And if you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, please don't worry. You've missed nothing and probably saved yourself ten quid. Okay. James's words about Christ's return weren't focused on astronomy or astrology, or nor were they intended for some kind of philosophical discussion or idle speculation. But when James gave these words to those people, they were deeply practical. And uh, he was writing, and we need, need to remember this, he was writing to suffering, uh, th those who were suffering persecution, suffering possibly even martyrdom. And his desire was to bring them hope that there would be an end to their suffering. And even if they were to be martyred, that was not the end because God was in control of world events and not the Roman emperor. The Apostle Paul, in a like manner, he encourages first century Christian believers to think in a similar way. In fact, he encourages Christians in the church of Corinth in southern Greece in the first century. He says our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So fix your eyes on, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Wow. Look at Romans chapter 8. He writes again in a similar vein to the church this time at Rome, 2,000 years ago. He says, what we suffer now is nothing to the glory of he will reveal to us later. I love the way that the message translation of the Bible puts that. And it says this, I don't think there is any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. Wow. That really gets to it, doesn't it? You know, sort of compare this with this. 
And both Paul and James are telling us similar things here. They're telling us that whatever the sufferings and difficulties caused by living for Jesus Christ in our world today, and sometimes there are sufferings. He says, compared to the joy and the ecstasy that one day you will experience when you meet him face to face, that's small fry. It's minor. Even the worst times, the times of greatest suffering, the times when perhaps you were belittled for being a Christian, the times you were put down, the times that you were harassed or demeaned or oppressed, they will pale into insignificance compared to that day that you will meet him face to face. And that's why James says here, be patient. There is coming a day when Christ will return. It will all be worthwhile. So persevere. He is the one who is in charge of history. And I would say to you very practically and very personally this morning, whatever you are going through, I want you to take that message home with you too. That Jesus Christ is in charge of your life. Whatever is happening at the moment is not taking him by surprise. And he wants you to know that. So therefore, now we've got the light and momentary trouble, says Paul. But then... We will have this eternal glory. And then, one of my favorite scriptures is the Apostle Paul, right at the very end of his life. In fact, he wrote, so it is believed, 13 out of 27 books in the New Testament. 13 of them attributed to Paul. But the very last one he wrote was a second letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. And not only in his last letter, but in his last chapter of that letter, Paul takes a look at his life and he reflects. And he comes out with these incredible words. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Wow! What incredibly inspiring words. So Paul has come to the end of his life. It's finished for him. It's time for him to go. Has it been all worthwhile? Absolutely, you bet it has. Has he wasted his time, his life following Jesus? Absolutely not. He now refers to the reward which is going to be his which he refers to as a crown of righteousness. I'm not really sure what that might mean. But soon he's about to hear those immortal words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. So why could those first century Christians be patient and courageous in suffering? It was because they knew that it was not the end. They knew that God was in control. They knew that Jesus was coming back again. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we are told... That there is a day coming when everything that has robbed us of joy in this life will be removed. Wow. When the wrongs of this world will be put right. When justice will be done. When there will be no more sickness or mourning or death. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the kingdom of God will be fully established. And the cry, as you will see through the book of Revelation of the people, was, Come, Lord Jesus, come. 
Maybe that isn't something you've never prayed for yourself. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maybe you've only ever prayed it on the odd occasion. I think I prayed it once before delivering my very first ever sermon. (laughs) Come now, Lord, please. And I think it was before my first funeral as well. Come, Lord, I don't want to do this. But seriously, there are many Christians in the world who are praying those words quite earnestly, quite sincerely. There are many Christians praying those words this morning as we are met together here. As the so-called Islamic State, the IS, are coming into their towns and villages. When they're coming in to rape their wives and daughters and behead their children. And what they do is tie men up and castrate them and let them bleed to death. You can understand how that prayer is so much more powerful. Come, Lord Jesus, come. There's a day coming when Jesus will judge the world in righteousness and in justice. I love the the words of the the former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, who's a great guy. Love his read, love his writings. And I quoted this to you before because it's one of my my all-time favourite quotes. It's from his book *Surprised by Hope*, and this is what he says: "God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes the people to shout for joy, and indeed the trees of the field to clap their hands." In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, oppression, the thought that there might be a coming a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is best news there can be. Faced with a world of rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. You see, if there was no promise of eternal glory, Suffering and death in this life wouldn't make any sense at all. doesn't make any sense at all. All the stuff that we experience and others experience, it just doesn't make any sense at all if there's no eternal glory. You see, the Lord's return for James was intended to bring comfort to those Christians who were going through tough times, to encourage them to be patient and courageous. But it was always meant as a challenge to Christians of all ages to live lives which are honouring to Jesus. And with the third reference there that we've got in our reading this morning, verse 9, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. And I don't know about you, when you were at school, I know it's a long time for you, some of you to think back, if you ever acted the goat. Any of you? No, you're much too holy. But I can't believe it was a case of you, Tim. You know, being in Penland School of all places. Was there ever a time that you acted the goat? Yes. (laughs) You know what it is, you know, sort of youngsters, the teacher leaves the room and then it's, oh, loads of bad behaviour. I don't know if you were ever in school when that happened. And unknown to you, the teacher was actually standing at the door. I'm watching all that was going on. Yeah? Or may not have been a teacher, maybe a parent, you know, unknown to you, one of your parents stood at the door when you and your friends were just letting off some steam. 
and talking about things you should never talk about and reading things that you should never read and viewing things that you should never view and your parent was at the door. Let me tell you an experience. When I was quite a young Christian, I worked in local government. And one morning, I crossed swords with Marion. Not a good thing to do. Marion was forceful. She was put the fear of God into most people. Ferocious lady. And I needed to go to Marion's office to ask her to do something for me so that I could then carry on with something else I was doing. But unless she did that for me, I could not do what I was doing. And she was, the lady was not for turning. She was not wanting to be helpful at all to me. And I was miffed. So I went back to my office and I let off some steam. I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> and I sort of said, oh, that woman, she's a pain in the neck. And lots more. <laughs> Only to realize that Marion was standing at the door, <laughs> listening to every word I said. Not my finest hour. I let myself down that day and I believe as a young Christian I let Jesus down too with my reaction. You see, James instructs those early suffering Christians not to grumble against each other. And again, you know, when we think of it, that's a natural reaction, isn't it? When you're going through the mill, when you're frustrated by life's stuff, you just have a right old mourn, you have a right old grumble, you have a whinge, and often against people who don't deserve our backlash. We've all done it. And James says, don't do that, because the judge is standing at the door. I'll tell you the truth, I'd rather meet Marion at the door than I would Jesus. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the the things done while in the body, whether good or or bad. And believe it or not, there that is Christians that Paul was writing to. And again in Romans chapter 14, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat. Again, Christians. You see, every person in this room whether you believe in Jesus, we believe in God or not, will one day stand before Jesus. Every one of us. Those of us who are Christians, we won't be judged on our sin because that's already been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. It's been covered by his death. His blood was shed for us. But every one of us will be judged according to how we have lived our lives, according to the way that we have served him in this world, for what we have done or not done in his name, for the way that we have used our resources. You see, Paul taught about this by giving an illustration. It's an illustration he gives in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 3. So he's writing to Christians in Corinth, 2,000 years ago. And he tells them that we're all building. 
Every one of us are building. We're building on a foundation. A foundation is sure and it's solid. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. But we're building with different materials. Some people, he said, and this is the metaphor, the illustration he was giving, they're building with gold, silver and precious stones. And other people who are building with wood, hay and straw. And Paul says that on that day, on the day that we meet Jesus, that is fire, a metaphor will burn away that which is combustible, the wood, hay and straw. And we will be left with nothing. Although Paul says that we ourselves will be saved. And the reason for that is that our salvation is not down to us. It is down to Jesus Christ, what he has achieved on that cross. 2,000 years ago when he died in our place. When he said it is finished. You see, even the most unproductive Christian will be welcomed into heaven. Entrance is not the issue. But the big question is this. Will we on that day suffer regret that we had not served the purposes of God better than we did in our lifetime? I can't answer that question for you. I can barely answer it for myself as I judge my own motives, which are so difficult to do. But it's a question that we need to answer for each other time's nearly gone I've been rabbiting a fair while this morning I'm sorry about that folks but there's so much more in these few verses that we read together uh, today so James is reminding these suffering believers to be patient that Jesus is coming back he tells them in in essence to look upwards on that great day but he also tells them to encourage them in their suffering not only look up but look around He says, look around. Look at the prophets who were before you. They went through an awful lot. They had extreme suffering. But look at the way that they carried on serving God. Look at the person Job. You see, there were many prophets in the Old Testament times. And there's a spine-chilling list in Hebrews chapter 11 of all that they went through. That they were tortured and flogged and chained and put in prison and sawn in two and put to death by the sword. And yet they faithfully carried on. And what James is saying here is, look to these people. They're an incredible example. I encourage you in the past and I, I continue to do so. Read Christian biographies. Read of those people who have served God well. And it does something within your heart it's great to read them in the Bible absolutely of course but read those Christian biographies of people who have just served Jesus so well and learn from them be inspired by them let your trust go deeper let your faith go wider as you do that the way that God often uses people who are just ordinary people like me and you and secondly James reminds them of this ancient story from the Hebrew scriptures A man named Job. He lost everything. His wealth, his health, his family. And yet he persevered. His suffering was immense. He lost everything. He lost everyone. And it seemed as if everyone was against him, even God. And yet the overarching message of this ancient Jewish narrative emphasized God is still in control. As I say, I've often encouraged you to read biographies of great Christians. People like William Carey. Many of you 
I won't ask who hasn't heard of William Carey, but he was a guy in the beginning of the 19th century who was regarded as the father of modern missions. He was um, a cobbler, an apprentice shoemaker. And uh, he left school at the age of 11 with an elementary education. Not much going for him. And yet, there came a time that he felt God's call to go out to India to speak to the Indian people. And he persevered in that country for a number of years. It was seven years he was in that country with his young family before he saw a single person turn to Jesus Christ to follow him. Seven years. That's patience for you. My word. During that time, his five-year-old son Peter died with dysentery, which caused his wife Dorothy to become insane. And yet he continued for another 28 years. The man with only a basic education managed to translate the Bible into India's major languages, Bengali, Oreya, Marathi, Hindi, Assamese and Sanskrit and another 209 other languages and dialects. And I can read of such people what they've gone through, all they've experienced. And you know what his famous phrase was? You know, don't you? Expect yeah. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Wow! This is the guy who went through all of that. And therefore, what I'm doing here is encouraging you to feed your hearts. Because, you know, the Christian life can on times be quite difficult. It can be quite hard being a Christian. All the stuff that we have to go through. And James, he says, look up. God's still in control. Look around, look at others, be inspired by them, be encouraged by their Christian lives. I am going to finish now, honest. I'm going to finish with just two quotes. An American pastor by the name of Warren Wiesby says, Patience means to stay put and stand fast when you'd like to run away. There can be no victories without battles. There can be no peaks without valleys. If you want blessing, you must be prepared to carry the burden and fight the battle. And an even better saying from the Apostle Paul, he says that we rejoice in our sufferings. That's not really the way that the non-Christian society would look at sufferings. But it's saying here, and speaking to Christians, we can rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Would you stand with me, please? Let's just bow our heads to pray. And as we do, just... Um, guys, if you'd like to come back, uh, you would lead us in a song in a moment. As I was uh, preparing this message this week, I was very aware of what Peter, the Lord's disciple, wrote in his letter in the New Testament. And he said in that letter and it, it, that the Lord's return is being delayed to provide opportunity for more people to turn their lives to him. You see, God desires that we know him. God desires that we commit our lives to him. 
And the big question I have today, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for having to ask you this question, but I, I feel I must. If Jesus Christ were to come back today, would you be ready to meet with him? Would you be ready to meet with him? And if your answer to that question is, I'm not really sure about that, I would encourage you this morning in this place, this a wonderful opportunity, just to open your heart to him and to say, Lord, I, I don't understand everything. There's very little that I do understand. But the one thing I do understand is that I need to give my life to you, to commit my ways to you. Come into my life today, Lord. Forgive my sin. Come into my life, I pray. The Bible says that as we confess our sin, He hears us. He forgives us. And I would just encourage you to do what I did 38 years ago. Come into my life, Lord. Please become real to me today. And that has changed the whole direction of my life, my outlook, and everything.